there's just so much on our minds and it's, it's hard to focus. It's hard to really focus on Christ. And maybe tonight you've got big plans. Anybody have big plans tonight? It's a special night. We've got the next season, uh, the next uh, episode in the show, Downton Abbey. I'm really excited about it. What's the Lord Grantham going to do? I don't know. I hope he's okay with the ulcer that he had. And Some people are watching some game or something too. But So it's easy to get distracted with things in our mind, even as stuff is... Um, as silly as uh, games and things like that. And it's an opportunity when we gather to really um, consider our lives before God's word. And so this morning, if you have a copy of the scriptures, please, please turn to Mark chapter 1 and we'll continue this series. We've called this first section of Mark really just asking the question, who is this Jesus? And we're seeking to find answers to that question. And the gospel Mark actually gives us some answers. And in so far, we've seen in this first chapter, we've seen already that Jesus has invited people to follow him. He's a leader. That he has the authority in his teaching like no one has ever seen before or heard before. And he has power in his hands and his healing. And he's got the capability over that which is spiritual and that which is physical. And a significant theme in the Gospel of Mark is Jesus ministering to others. Christ as a servant. If you work through the whole book, if you were to spend time this week reading the whole book, you'd see that over and again how he serves. And he's just meeting people at their level, speaking to them, providing what only he can in deliverance and restoration for them spiritually, physically. And what we have in the scriptures then on record then is we get to see how people responded to Christ, responded to his compassionate authority and power. And what we have to do this morning is consider what is our own response. And you may be like the disciples of long ago who asked, you know, well, Jesus, show us the Father that we might believe. And he says, well, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Jesus continues by saying to these Doubtful disciples, and maybe you're one of them, as I can be one of them. Blessed are they that believe without seeing. And that's the time in which we live. We don't have Christ as we do here, but Christ's spirit, God's spirit exists in those who know him. And so it does take faith to engage God's word and to consider our lives in light of it. So the question I want us to ask this morning and to answer for ourselves is, what is our personal response to Christ, who he is and what he's done? So Mark chapter 1, verse 29, it's a short text this morning. I'm going to read through the text. And then I'm going to pray and ask God to teach us and instruct us this morning. As soon as they left the synagogue, verse 29, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon is the one later to be called Peter. We know they're in the synagogue because the text before this, as Pastor Scott tossed us last week, that they're in the synagogue in Capernaum. And Capernaum is this major fishing town, this big industrial, uh, this big marketing area on the Sea of Galilee. And, and wherever you're standing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, it has a different name, but it's the same place. It's not really an ocean. It's this lake. And uh, wh wherever shore you're on, whatever city you're on around it, that's what it's called. And the synagogue that Christ was in still exists today. On the floor, you can actually stand on the same floor. There's other parts that have built up over time, but that floor is still there. And in fact, if you just go a few hundred yards away from that, you can actually go to what are the remains of Peter's home today. They did find it. They dug down. They found etchings in the walls and found it. There's a structure that hangs over it. You can go into and look down to see where these folks were. This is a real place. It's real. And Jesus makes his way from the synagogue, from the, from the gathering of the Jews and doing some teaching there and casting out a demon. And people have never seen this before. And he just walks over to Peter's home, and in his home is with his brother and his wife, children, and mother-in-law. And some pastors are supposed to insert some mother-in-law joke here, but my mother-in-law is awesome, so I won't. <laughs> Verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out demons, but 
would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And we looked at that thought because he did the same in the text previous. Let's pray and ask God to teach us this morning. Lord God, for this morning, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege to gather in your name. And we ask, God, that your presence would be known here. We ask, God, that your spirit would do a work in us collectively, individually, that we might see Jesus for who he is and that we might respond appropriately to who he is and what he's done. And God, as we open up your word, we, we do so expectantly. Ask that you would instruct and teach us, guide us, confront us, equip us, encourage us. I pray, God, that you would, in your grace, meet each person right where they are and that each one of us wouldn't leave without being changed. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Look back again at verse 29, beginning of our text. As soon as they had left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon, that's Peter, his mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So Mark is really giving us a day in the life of Jesus, isn't he? Mark is what many people believe is the scribe, the scribe for Peter. And he's writing down eyewitness accounts. And as we know from the context, Jesus in Capernaum, I shared that with you before. And then he's in this home, Peter's home, and uh, that exists still to this day. And then Jesus is immediately told about Peter's mother-in-law who's sick. The message here, the, the text here says that she has a fever. Now, this same story is also found in the book of Matthew and in Luke. And in Luke's account, Dr. Luke, as we could call him, because he was a doctor, says that she has a high fever. Getting sick in those days uh, was probably pretty different than now, wouldn't you think? You know, maybe we don't turn to Jesus all that quickly these days because we just have these incredible uh, medical advances, don't we? We've got pills and remedies and homeopathic thoughts for everything. And in these days, it's, it's, it's not the same. But I think about now, I got on YouTube this past week, and I love to see people's testimonies and stuff on YouTube. But I saw some pretty awesome things medically on YouTube this past week where there are people that are blind, not just legally blind, like without their glasses or contacts like me. I can't see nothing. But people that can't really see nothing. And they have these glasses you can put on that um, create a video where they can see it. They can see it in their, like, brains, so I saw a video of a woman who saw her newborn child for the first time because of this medical advance. Isn't that, isn't that incredible? How do you think that people respond when they put those glasses on? They bawl and they rejoice, right? I saw another video. You can see a lot of these over and over again. And I have a strong disposition toward the hearing impaired. I don't know why. God's just given that to me. And people can choose if they want. It's a very difficult choice to do, like it's called the cochlear implant, where people can do those things. And they can hear for the first time. They can hear their spouse's voice for the first time or their children. It's incredible. And how do the people respond, you know? They bawl. <laughs> they rejoice. The little ones, sometimes children, they'll get fearful. They scream because they're experiencing something that they had never experienced before since birth. Incredible. Medical advances all the time for different things, although we can't cure the common cold. Not so fast, you homeopathic people. But for this lady, it's something quite different maybe happening. For Peter's mother-in-law, it's possible that this fever may have been something quite unique. At, at this time in, in, in Scripture here, the people, uh, many people considered fever an actual illness, not the symptom of an infection. <clears throat> and most observers of God's law believe that fevers were a, had some theological consequence. In Leviticus chapter 26, verse 16, and Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 22, we read that God's law says that for those who violate his covenant, he will bring upon them 
things such as fever. is serious. And that this fever is actually only curable by God's hand himself. Something very, very different might be going on. I've had lots of different troubles in my life, tubes in my ears and adenoids out and acid reflux and I've had gout for like four weeks. No one can heal that. My wife calls me tenderfoot. That's true. But I don't have what this lady has. What hope is there for her? For this woman, we don't know how, how long she's been sick. She's in her bed. She's, she's on the sidelines, not able to do what she's used to doing. Have you ever been there? Maybe it's physical illness for you or disease, awful pain or setbacks. Something you've had for a long time or you just recently got a diagnosis. Maybe you're experiencing other kinds of pains that there's nothing you can do to change it. Relational, emotional, physical, spiritual, there's like nothing. You, you've tried everything you know and your friends try to tell you stuff and all your well-wishing friends give you tips that they tried before and nothing's working for you. And you're not able to do what you used to do or want to do. So you're left hoping that God will provide merciful help. I think a lot of folks in our days face this. We've got a lot of folks in our church that face cancer and different kinds of disease and illness, and they're just not able to do what they wish they could do. And they've been praying. And what resources do we have? I mean, prayer is our, our best weapon for sure. So let me say this as it relates to sickness and disease as, and the connection with God. There is a great connection between God, people, and pain. Wherever there is sickness, there is opportunity for God to display his glory. You can think about that this week. In the sickness, during the sickness, there's opportunity for God to display his glory. I don't know what it's been like for you in your life. Maybe you've had much sickness. Maybe you've had something as simple as like the stomach flu. Man, I pray so much when I have the stomach flu. Just bring me home. I'm a quitter, for sure. I just want to go home. Unbearable. But then when you have loved ones that are sick, then you, we want, not forgotten necessarily to bring them home all the time. We want them to have something now. We want them to have healing now. And God is capable to heal, right? So why doesn't he heal immediately? Why doesn't he do what we ask him to do? Is there any purpose in the process? Is there any purpose in the pain? And we look through the scriptures, and you can look through the catalogs of your own life and say, you know what, there probably is. Wherever there's sickness, there's an opportunity for God's glory to be on display. In sickness and through healing, which may come immediately, as we see in the scripture several times, or maybe over time, which usually is for the person who's sick, it's for their benefit that it happens over time, because usually pain and trial produces perseverance or faith. And God knows what is good. Sometimes there's gradual healing then, and then there's also ultimate healing in the presence of God and his kingdom. And let's just say this up front. Everyone who Christ healed in the New Testament eventually died. So there's something, there's something greater to do about healing than just the healing itself. So if God can heal, is not the question as we see in Scripture. If he can heal, if he's capable to heal, it's not the question that the Christian usually asks, one that has faith. Our ponder, our wonderings usually are when. 
and we're most interested in now. So what did Jesus do for Peter's mother-in-law? Let's look. Verse 31. So he, that is Jesus, went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. Jesus makes his way, maybe this is a, into a lower level or an upper level, we don't know, or just down the hallway. He finds his way to her and he comes into her room and I'm sure he can just sense the sickness. One of my great privileges as a pastor is the opportunity to visit people that are sick in the hospital and you can sense it, right? And Jesus makes his way to this room and maybe there's a crowd of people that have been mourning for a while and, and praying and he finds his way to this woman and he goes to where she is and if she's laying her, he goes down to her. And what does the text say? He says he touches, he takes her by the hand. He's basically touching someone who would have probably been perceived as unclean, unfit to touch, unfit to pursue. That's Jesus' style, isn't it? I was thinking this week about who, who are the untouchables of our day? Who in your mind is someone that you can't go serve, you can't go minister to because you've perceived them as too unclean? Someone that's caused you the most harm, trouble, abuse? Maybe those that are in prison, you think, man, they deserve to rot there? I mean, you know, God's word says a lot about visiting those that are in prison. There's a story of a gentleman who later in time became known as Father Damien. He was a missionary to Hawaii. Yeah, a really tough place, it seems. Maybe just a little bit worse than Raleigh. This is in the late 1800s, and Father Damien's mission actually was to go and to serve, minister to those that have been segregated because of leprosy. And he wanted to minister to the lepers, so he did. And you know what happened? People were ministered to and felt loved and sensed God's love. He wanted them to know God's love. And you know what happened with him? He got leprosy and died. So he goes to those that were deemed untouchable. What, what about you? This is Jesus' style. Seems a lot like Jesus and his approach to service. It's hands-on. I think before I had children, untouchables for me were snotty-nosed children and all the stuff that comes out of them. We have five children now, and I love to be up in their space. And then we get sick, you know. That's happening right now in Bridge Kids. And people are surfing in there every week. And they get sick sometimes. You know. Jesus is hands-on with people. And we don't see any of Christ's words in our account, but in Dr. Luke's account, we read that Jesus rebuked the fever, the text says. Last week we saw that Jesus rebuked demons, told them to shut up, they can't speak. And people, scholars debate about why he did that, and we won't get into that today. But here he's rebuking a fever, speaking of the fever. What do you think that style was like? Do you think he gets up close to her ear? It's time. It's over. Your purpose is done and I'm here. It's time to go. Do you think he shouts? We see other occurrences in scripture when Jesus speaks to things that are strange, really strange. Like one time he speaks to a storm and do you know what the storm responded with? Silence and stopped. And the disciples were afraid because even the wind and waves obey him. Demons obey, sickness obey. Jesus speaks to the fever. Jesus commands to the fever to leave and there is instant compliance. 
He is the creator and sustainer of all life. The scripture says that the fever left her. The literal translation is this, the fever forsook her. Showing all witnesses then that Jesus has total control over the spiritual world and physical world. The stuff that's seen on the outside and stuff that's happening on the inside. Total control. And I was wondering, you know, if this fever was related to something that she did, as the Old Testament law says, can happen, can happen. Just as we see in the New Testament when Paul writes to the church in Corinth that the reason why they're sick and dying among you is because some of you are taking communion inappropriately or communion with God. You're saying that things are good with God in you, but actually you have secret sin that's against brothers or against yourself. Same as the New Testament. It can happen. It's interesting to me that Jesus didn't say this before healing the woman. Why didn't he say this? Now, woman, before I do this, please tell everybody what I already know, that naughty thing you did. Why didn't he do that? Why doesn't he condemn her sin first before the witnesses? We know that Jesus isn't soft on sin. He acknowledges. He never compromises the truth. We have no recording of that. He rebukes the fever and lifts her up to her standing position like a total restoration. Why doesn't he do that? Isn't it true that sometimes we think people need to do something for us first before we can serve them? Like they need to behave a certain way or they need to be nicer first before they're allowed to receive our Compassion. Who have you deemed disqualified to receive compassion from you? It's the same question as who are the untouchables in a sense for you. It's people that you've decided are actually too below you that you can't serve them. Too unbecoming, too sickly, too sinful for you. And yet we don't see this with Jesus. This very, very well may have been something that she had done. Maybe Who have you deemed disqualified to receive compassion from you? I'd like to encourage you to talk with the Lord about that and praise him for not treating us that way. Jesus serves this woman and Luke says in his account that immediately the woman arose, totally restored. This time Jesus healed immediately. In fact, we see this often throughout the gospels. You might see around 90 different miracles that related to healing that Jesus does in the four gospels. And he restores the full mobility on paralyzed limbs, full sight to the blind, full hearing to the deaf, fully cleansed leprous skin. You see Jesus do that? We read in the gospels that every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people Jesus engaged. In fact, the book of John, John records the end of his letter that if they were to write down all the things that Jesus had done, it'd fill all the pages of all the books in all the world. Perpetually serving. Jesus even raised the dead. And you would think then that people seeing these things, seeing these miracles, like, man, if I could see Jesus do stuff today, if he came in here today, I'd believe. It's actually not true. People saw Jesus with their own eyes, and some believed, the scriptures say over and over again, and some didn't believe, and then still others wanted to plot and kill him all the more. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. People hadn't seen stuff like this in their lifetime. Lazarus comes forward. It's incredible. People are shocked. And then the religious leaders say, and they plotted all the more to kill Jesus. Seeing is not believing. Believing's believing. How would you respond? How would you respond if you were in Peter's home? You can go to his home today and see the very place. It's real. How would you respond? See, when Jesus did miracles, the crowds often responded with shock. In Mark chapter 2, which we'll see the coming weeks, Lord willing, the scriptures tell us that the crowd says that we've never seen anything like this. 
In Matthew chapter 9, verse 33, we read that nothing like this has ever been done in Israel, the crowd says, and that's kind of half true. It's just been a long time. Some believe that the first healing miracle that we see is around Genesis chapter 20. You fast forward 1,500 years to the book of Isaiah, and between that time, there's around 20 miraculous healings. You fast forward again, hundreds of hundreds of years to the time of Christ, we've got no recorded healings. So it does make sense that this crowd would respond with shock, would respond with something. How would you respond? When you hear a testimony of someone whose life has been changed by Jesus Christ, is it mundane because we've read the Bible before and that's just what Jesus does? Or is it supernatural? Look how the crowd responds in verse 32. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. That's how they're responding, loved ones. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. How did the crowd respond? Well, after sunset, they all came knocking on the door. And why did the crowd have to wait till after sunset? Does anybody know any of our Bible students? Because we know on this day from the previous text that this is the Sabbath. And for those that are paying attention to rabbinical uh, um, teachings and, that are related to the law, just even more steps added on top of the law, we know that on the Sabbath day that you cannot travel or carry things. You certainly can't carry sick people. So when the sun was down, the Sabbath was completed. Now, mind you, Jesus heals on the Sabbath all the time. And it really causes problems for other people. It doesn't cause problems for him because he knows that the Sabbath was gift to people. And he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And he'll decide what's work and what isn't work. So the people wait as good um, observers of the rabbi's traditions tell them to do, and they start bringing their sick. That's their response. That's their response to Christ's compassionate power and authority. They start bringing, the scriptures tell us, all who were sick. Upon learning about what Jesus had done, it would be safe to assume, wouldn't it, that these folks are desperate, hurting, needy, and now hope-filled that Jesus might do for their loved one what he had done for Peter's mother-in-law and for the guy at the synagogue earlier that day. Hope-filled that maybe Jesus can bring healing, change, and restoration and peace for them. So they're responding to Jesus by bringing people to Jesus. That's what the text says, and that's something to consider, and I challenge you to write that down. One of our appropriate responses to Christ is to bring Jesus to Christ, or bring people to Christ, excuse me. The text says that the whole town gathered at the door, and that's a figure of speech meaning lots of people. And think about the line of folks that evening. And it's interesting because we've got no recording of Jesus saying, that's it, that's it. After the 101st person, the healing services will be next Sunday at 7 p.m. at the Capernaum Bank Arena. Please bring $75 for admission. Why doesn't he do that? Because he's compassionate and his authority and power. And so the line forms. Can you just imagine the line and the sickness and the disease and the demon press that are there? Can Jesus handle the whole town? Can he handle Raleigh? Who are we bringing to Jesus? Think about the things that you'd wait for. What would you, how long would you wait for Jesus to bring healing and restoration to a loved one or for yourself? I, can, I waited in lines for lots of things before. My life went, grew up going to Disney in the 80s. MGM in the 90s, we waited like for six hours for the King Kong ride in 98 degrees. That's stupid. But we waited. Harris Teeter can get long. How long would you wait? Have you ever been in a doctor's office before and you wait for 30 minutes in the waiting area and then they get you to wait 45 minutes on that paper and then looking at your room? 
I don't know what to do. I start cutting tiles. And <laughs> How long would you wait? It's appropriate to consider the text in your life in light of the text. Knowing that Jesus is just inside that room, how long would you wait for a loved one to meet Jesus? How long would you suffer with that person that they might meet Jesus? Can you imagine Christ seeing these people and touching here? This person, this deaf person can hear, this blind person can see, this, this, cancer gone, that's gone, anxiety gone, this is gone, this demon's gone, nope, shut up, nope, come here, nope. Thinking for these three people, just thinking it, just a thought, a word, a whisper, over and over again. Raleigh is 1.9 million people in the surrounding area. The statistics come and go, change a little bit, touch. And why would he do that? Knowing that every person that will be healed will die in time. It's appointed to each person that death come upon them. It's the wage, it's the price that's given for our sin. He's just operating out of who he is. He serves them all. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 tells us that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ, the servant king. Have you ever noticed that Jesus doesn't actually have any bias toward who he'll serve? <laughs> I mean, I like who I like, you know? I don't want anybody to make me uncomfortable. He touches the leper, meets with the demon-possessed, hangs around notorious sinners, teaches men, women, and children, hangs out with the non-religious, the irreligious, the angry, hangs out with the religious people that know everything. Jesus serves them all. The whole town comes, and people are bringing people to Jesus with hope that maybe he'll do for them something that they cannot do for themselves. Jesus is a servant do you think that um, serving others is a highly regarded characteristic today? I mean, there's whole, there's, there's whole classes about leadership. I wonder if there's any classes in our schools today, in colleges and seminaries, about servanthood. 35 irrefutable laws on leadership. There are tons of resources on leadership, but how much on servanthood? And I've been wondering, maybe those aren't diametrically opposed. Jesus leads by serving. He doesn't have to prove anything. Some people say, Jesus had to do miracles so that people might believe. Uh-uh, Jesus does miracles because of who he is. And people still don't believe. He was simply being. He's, he is compassionate. He didn't have to become it. And because he was compassionate, it moved him to meet real needs, and then people were moved to him. So for you and I who are followers of Jesus, opportunities for compassion and acts of service can be found anywhere there's people. Do you have people around you in your life? There's an opportunity. We have a whole town here as well. We have hurting people in our church. As we learn to follow Jesus, loved ones, his character and what is important to him will ultimately transform how we live as we follow him. And that's the invitation we have from the first chapter of Mark. I think that invitation stands today. If you desire to follow him, you're invited. Yield your life to him, and it's a life of service. Who's interested? It's very different than simply the invitation of going to heaven someday, isn't it? As God leads us, we begin to see real needs, and our desire will be to use whatever we have available to us to come to the aid of others. And like the healthy who bring the sick to Jesus, who needs you to bring them to Jesus? Who's your person? 
And you say, well, how can I bring them to Jesus? He's not in some home today like Peter's home. I can do that. Well, you can bring them to Christ through prayer. And then secondly, through sharing what Jesus has done in your life to transform you. Point them to Christ. Connect them to Christ. That's the mission. How is Jesus changing you? Who, who needs to experience the compassion of Christ through you? You meet a real need and you share with them then a real tangible earthly need. Then you also at the same time share with them of the eternal need in Jesus Christ that can only be found in him. For this town, Jesus had something they want. You know, and everyone wants healing. We too want what Jesus can provide for us. We want him to solve our problems. We want him to make everything better. So Jesus has something that we want, but actually he is someone we need. There's something more than what he can provide in a healing. He, he himself is someone we need and he gives himself to people. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you have something around, the, the, those around you who do not have Christ need and that's Christ. That's what you have to offer. The text says, look at your Bibles again. The text says that Jesus healed many who had various diseases. And that's interesting because we look through all the scriptures and see how infrequent healings are. And then we see here that Jesus is just continually doing this healing. Nothing's bigger than him. There's no circumstance that he can't figure out. There's no um, diagnosis that's, that he just doesn't have the know-how about that one. And it's not if he can heal, but when and how. But when we look at this and you look at the Gospels, and if you're spending time this week in your own Bible reading when you're looking through the Gospels, there's something way bigger than the miracles themselves. Because temporary healing is, is never the actual point. Miracles are to point people to Jesus. Miracles aren't to point people to the healing so that healings become amplified. The point of the miracles is to point to Christ. Not the healing or the healed, but to the healer. The miracles then help answer the question we're investigating in this series, who is this Jesus? Again, Jesus doesn't have to prove anything, but his actions prove everything, don't they? That's why Matthew's account of this same story we're looking at today actually adds to it a prophecy that Christ is fulfilling in this time and in the time to come. Matthew chapter 8, verse 17, he quotes the prophet Isaiah. And remember, between the time of Isaiah and the time of Christ, we don't have any recorded healings. There could have been some. We don't have any recorded. And so it's interesting that Matthew would use the prophet Isaiah recalling that, that actually Christ is fulfilling it. This is what he has to say. This was to, uh, to fulfill what the prophet, spoken through the prophet Isaiah, what's happening here with Peter's mother-in-law in the whole town. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Now, Jesus has the power to end sickness, but not just temporarily, but for all time. And so what Matthew is doing in his gospel is the same as what Mark's doing, is they're pointing people to Christ, not just for something temporary, but for all time, for eternity future. And that's the A beauty of the gospel message. Jesus' primary mission then is not temporary healing or drawing a crowd. Lots of people can draw a crowd and lots of people have healing services. But to preach repentance, to preach to the kingdom and to seek and to save that which is lost. And lost people are found through response to Christ. What is your response? Lost people are found in Christ as they respond to his love. They respond in repentance and trusting in Christ's atonement on the cross and resurrection and then following him. Through the miracles, the scriptures tell us then that some believed Christ in him, who he is and what he's done and who he says he is, and others rejected him all the more. So what should our response be, loved ones, to Jesus? When you hear this account, you think, well, that's back then, and man, I just don't feel Jesus today. Hmm. What should our response be to this Jesus? He, 
is still active and he's interceding for your behalf right now at the Father's side. And God's Spirit has been sent here to, to work and to move and to, to move for those that are followers of Jesus. What should our response be? Well, number one, you can write this down. Like the town, I should bring people to Jesus. <laughs> that should be my response. But number two, let's look at how Peter's mother-in-law responded. I skipped it on purpose, and we'll just finish this with this. Look at verse 31 again. So he went to her, that's Jesus going to the mother-in-law, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her, and then underline this too, and she began to wait on them. That's a phrase to mean that she began to serve them. Now the point of this isn't to amplify Peter's mother-in-law, but to consider then her response is quite appropriate, isn't it? She waited on them, meaning she served them. This is a purposeful inclusion in Mark, and it's actually also found in Matthew and in Luke's account. She served them. So when I look at this, I think, okay, healing leading to service just makes sense. The woman that shared her story here today with you, that's inviting you to celebrate recovery to hear her full story. It makes sense that she'd want to serve others by, because of what Christ has done for you. Does your amount of how you serve others, is that reflect the, me- the measure of healing that you receive from Christ? You know, God responds, or we respond to God in some form, either in service or in rejection. It's going to happen. God's grace then falls on, on the just and unjust, rain, life, air, breath, that breath, unjust people, just people get that breath, and that breath, provision, sunshine, but not everyone responds in service to the blessings of Christ. Yet he keeps blessing. But isn't it true that service is a characteristic of discipleship? When there's healing of any kind, it makes perfect sense that their response would be service. It's like a form of of worship. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, we get a thought from Paul to Christians in Rome about what life ought to be like in response to the great gift that God's given us in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection and new life, eternal life. He writes, therefore, so in light of all that Jesus has done, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. He died for me, so I'll live for him, is the idea. Verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, the world's philosophies, world's thinking and styles and approaches to the best life, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And let me let you in a little bit on the secret of God's will. Here it is. Are you ready? Love him and love others. That's the plan. So what is your plan in response to Christ and his great compassion and service to you and his generosity toward you and his, the life he's given you to the healing he's provided to you? We should be asking ourselves, how can I serve Jesus today? How can I do that when he's not here? I, I I can't physically see him. Well, I'll give you a couple ideas. They're from the scripture. And truthfully, there's lots of ways to serve him. But here's two ideas to think of. Number one, and we're concluding here. Number one, serving people of your church is serving what is called the body of Christ. So if this is your church or the church that you're part of, the local fellowship, by giving of your life to that body, by serving and meeting real needs and using the gifts and abilities and time and talent and treasure that God's given you to serve and edify the body, that's a way of serving Christ. Of all the ways that God could have done this plan, he chose to have the Son ascend to his side, to send his spirit to dwell in those that follow Jesus, that they would represent him then on this earth. That's, of all the ways, that's the way he did it. 
So a way in which we serve Christ is by serving other believers. Wouldn't it be incredible if everyone that called Southbridge their church would serve on a team? It takes over 100 people for us to even meet here on Sunday mornings. Constantly asking the same people to serve. Our covenant members, we have about 300 covenant members of this church. We call this a worship service, and I wonder sometimes if it, really, if it is really. <laughs> we all come here ready to give something? Give of our praise and our tithe and our service? I don't know. There's this thought that a lot of times pastors and church people pass around. I think it's something like um, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Is that right, Dave? So some kind of statements like that. People put that on giving and on serving and stuff like that. I don't know. It might be worse or better. I don't know. And Southbridge has people within its body that serves generously, faithfully for over years and years. Southbridge will be nine in March. But what would it be like that everyone comes and partakes of this ministry would actually serve one another? And it can be in a formalized team or it can just be organic and informal as the Lord leads you. If you're thinking to yourself, there's no place for me to serve, I'd love to hang out with you. It's an application of this text. We see that Peter's mom is healed and she responds immediately with service. It makes sense. And yet sometimes we withhold service for some reason. We think we're justified to do so because we're too busy or something. What's the point of being here? So that's one idea. Serving the people of your church is serving the body of Christ. And number two, it's serving your neighbors and community or this world as Christ did. So two applications how do you engage your neighbors? How do you engage the community? How do you engage the world around you? And I would challenge you to find ways to meet practical needs just as Christ did, so as to then also then serve them by letting them know of this Jesus that you've come to love, the rescuer of your soul. It's okay to give water to someone who's thirsty, but to not share the gospel with them is robbing them of having a forever thirst quenched. Do both. For Peter's mother-in-law, Jesus went, took her by the hand, lifted her, healed her, restored her, served her, and in response, she served. A little line right there. I think that should be our testimony, shouldn't it? Southbridge worship services. Worship service. And worship is our appropriate response to accurately seeing God for who he is. And for this woman, she served. What's your plan? The no plan plan is a plan, that's for sure. I want to lose weight. What's your plan? I don't know. Well, then you're not losing weight. I want to get out of debt. What's your plan? I don't know. Probably charge it. Then you're probably not, you're not going to get out of debt. I want to be better at service. This sounds compelling, and Jesus is compelling enough for me to serve others, but what are you going to do? And let me just say this. God doesn't love you more the more that you serve. But the scriptures tell us that it pleases him. Faith pleases him. Serving others by faith does please him. But he couldn't be more crazy about you than he is. He's so much so that he sent his son. No strong arming into service because that's not real. It's not from your heart then. But I challenge you this week to consider it. Consider how you're going to be a part of serving in this body and serve, or the body that you're a part of if you're visiting with us and this community. And the Lord will lead you and he'll be with you and you'll sense his pleasure, I think. You gotta get to, the more you get to know Jesus, the more it's going it's gonna, it's gonna to drive you. Out of gra- gratitude, you know? Okay, let's pray. Lord God, for this morning, thank you. Thank you for each person that's here. 
Thank you for this church family, and Lord, help us to truly be family-like, to not compromise on the truth, to have those hard talks, to fight when you want us to for good, to love one another and show compassion and mercy, not condemning or judgmental, but truth-telling, motivated by love. Lord, let our church truly um, make disciples who make disciples. Let us, God, fulfill your great commission with a great commandment motive to love you and to love others. I pray, God, for this church in advance for this week, God, that you allow them to find ways to serve, ultimately then serving you, and that you might be pleased. Thank you so much for your love and no strings attached to love that comes to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to demonstrate that toward others, to be as Christ others, and to fulfill